The governor of Maryland does not understand what rights are when he was talking about masks. So that gives us a chance to talk about something much deeper than that. But we will start with week two of Advent. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains. It's fun to start with a correction, but last week I said that week two of Advent had a theme of joy. That's wrong. It's week three. We actually have this week's theme being preparation, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. After that, there uh, I've got some stats I found about the global church I think are quite interesting for everybody. The governor of Maryland said these words, you don't have a constitutional right to walk around without a mask. And that's new information for me. I, I didn't know this was codified into the Constitution, so we will talk about that and, and the ideas undergirding it. Plus, I think in the political world, we're getting distracted from something that matters a whole bunch. I want to do that and a whole lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show, so stick with us. First, my name is indeed Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to his radio talk, 91.9 and 92.9, or wherever you find podcasts. I am grateful that you listen. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina. You are invited if you do not currently have a church home. Come on by. We'd love to have you on a Sunday morning. I will be preaching all of the Sundays in December as I go through our Advent series. Now, speaking of Advent, here we are in week number two. Happy Advent season. Merry Christmas to you. I love this time of year. It is thought of as the new year for Christians. Of course, we have the calendar the, that we all run on. January 1 is technically the new year, but in the church calendar, Christmas really is the beginning. And so here we are in our celebration of turning something over new, having a new year. And last week we talked about hope, the necessity of hope, looking forward to something. And very specifically, we talked about the child-born son is given, that there's a promised one who has come, who will come again to make all things right. And we hold on to that hope. Not a an optimism. You know, I, I meant to say this last week. Optimism is a blind thinking that everything will just turn out turn out okay. I'm sure everything will turn out fine. Hope is based on something. Hope is based on prior experience. Hope is based on truth. So not just, well, I sure do hope so, but no, I, I feel it deeply because there's reason for this confidence. And so we talked about hope last week. This week, it's preparation. So you have the sequence making a lot of sense. You hope for something. You believe it's coming, not just optimistically thinking it's going to happen, but hoping that it will take place. And so because you do believe it will take place, you prepare for it. This makes sense to you, right? You've heard the old illustration that if, you, if, the, if the farmer prays for rain, he should prepare his fields. So don't pray for rain when you need for rain if you have not properly irrigated and put together where you want to gather water and if you haven't prepared your field properly to receive the rain, then don't be praying for rain. You, you may be hoping for it in some way, but you're certainly not prepared for it. So prepare for that which you hope. Maybe those of you who are married, you prepared yourself for it. You got your life together. You were able to manage your own affairs. You 
became a person of appeal to someone else. You prepared to be married by becoming a person who, by being, you wanted marriage, you were hoping for, you believed it could happen, so you prepared yourself to go into it. For the entrepreneur listening to me, for the person in business, some, some, some kind of success, you hoped for the position, for the promotion, for the raise, you hoped for the business success, but then you prepared for it. You didn't just think it was going to happen, you got ready for the thing you believed was going to take place. I've given the illustration before, but let's pretend you don't remember everything I say. During my college years, my dad lived overseas in Germany. And when he would be returning, I remember my mother would want to get the house just right and wanted me to cut the grass. And he, she wanted to have things prepared for his return. Dad is coming, so let's get things right. Let's get things ready for his return. And so there is this hope, but hope connects. It's not just belief. It connects then to preparing for that which for, for that which you hope. That's a weird grammatical structure. And so the, the word, the, the theme for this week for you is prepare for the king. Prepare for the king is coming. I think this is actually an easy one to illustrate to your kids. We're preparing for Christmas. So what do we do? Well, we put up a tree. We have the hope of Christmas. We have the hope of Christmas Day. We have the hope of all these gifts. So what do we do? We put up a tree. We wrap presents. We make cookies. We, 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 we bake meals for when the people who are coming over or for going to see parents and grandparents. There's preparations made. We put the decorations in the yard. Why? Because we're preparing. We believe something is coming. Hope is coming. And we want to make sure we are doing everything we can to prepare for it. This is not just concepts. It's, it's also quite biblical. You know, that's one of, one of the themes of Jesus' parables. You'll pick up the idea of preparation. It's a, maybe you'll remember this from the parable. Maybe you'll remember it from the song. But the wise man built his house upon the rock. And when the rains came tumbling down, his house stood firm. He was not hoping for the rain necessarily. It's not necessarily connected directly to hope, but he was prepared. He was prepared and therefore he was okay. The ten virgins in the story, in that story of the, of the parable of Jesus. Five virgins were prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And they get to go into the joy of that wedding as, as bridesmaids. And then five were not prepared. This is a theme throughout the Proverbs. But directly related to this time of year, you can pick up fairly early on in the book of Luke, Mary getting a message from Gabriel the angel of this coming Messiah through her. And she ponders these things in her heart. That's one thing she does. She goes to her family member, Elizabeth, and prepares with her. There is even something of a foreshadow there in that when she goes to see Elizabeth, it's, it's John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb, the forerunner, the preparer of his way. And Mary goes through even a, a mental process. If you read that through Luke chapter 1, I think, starts in, I think it starts in verse 26, where she is very skeptical of this thing, but accepts it. She accepts this is what's coming. And so she's going to prepare her life, prepare her heart, prepare her mind for this, this thing the Lord was doing in her. And so, for you, we, we have these things we hope for, 
I, I mentioned things like marriage or success or kids and you prepare your life, you prepare your home, you prepare for Christmas by getting the house ready and buying the presents, getting them wrapped, all that stuff. So we have this hope. The king did come. He established his kingdom. The war is effectively over. The kingdom of God wins. But there is still ground to be taken. And so we prepare for his coming. I know part of those parables are, that I think about through Jesus' teaching is about faithfulness. How do we want to be found when the king returns? When the master returns, are we faithful with what he's giving us, with what he's given us? You know, I had someone ask here recently, went to breakfast with, uh, with somebody, and he asked me, what's your calling? That's a really hard, a really hard question to me. Because I, I, I don't know. I don't know the, the specifics. And so my response to him was faithfulness. My calling is faithfulness. I will be prepared. I want to prepare for the coming of my master by being faithful. He is entrusted to me my own life skills, gifts, intellect, talents, whatever they are, as menial as they are. Well, I want to be faithful with them. Use them for the kingdom instead of using them for my own name, renowned, and advancement. He's given me two nephews that get to play something of a dad role for. I want to be faithful in that role. Give them the best example I can give them to follow. He's given me trust along with the other elders at Beechwood Church to about 25, 26 households of precious souls. I want to be faithful to teach the Bible correctly, teach the Bible rightly, and point those folks towards Jesus. For whatever reason, he's given me a radio show on on his radio talk. He's given me something of a tiny little audience in podcasting. I want to be faithful. And he's given you something. He's given you a spouse, given you children, given you a household to oversee, given you a church or some influence, given you some talents and abilities, given you resources. And that's how we prepare. He is coming back. It's one of the themes of good Christian songs, often is the case in the old hymns. The final stanza of any given hymn is about the return of the Lord. And there is coming a day that when we, we will see, or I believe the, the, one of the more modern songs is, uh, our gaze will be transfixed on Jesus' face. So let's prepare. Prepare our lives by being faithful to the things God has given before us. That's not the big, grandiose achievement. The, grand, the grandiose achievement you are being called to is simply this. Be faithful and prepare for the coming of the king. When we come back, I want to give you one of those stats I have, I've come across that intrigues me. I like numbers and statistics. We'll talk about that. Uh, and then I think yeah, I want to get into this thing the Maryland governor said because there's some deeper consequences to it. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show. Welcome back to His Radio Talk on Saturday morning or Saturday evening, if you can get the show there. Or welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts. I'm glad to have you with us. I want to give you one quick stat that I came across from a professor at Baylor University. And we won't spend too much time on it, but I think it is quite interesting. And it also brings perspective. So it's, it's information, but 
information that I like the most is information that leads to inspiration. I can't remember the context in which I said this recently, but that is that is the way of activism. That is the way of getting people to move in a direction you want is to get to activation. You have to give them inspiration and information. If they are informed and inspired, then they will be activated. And so uh, I maybe give you some of that right now through information. Right now on the planet, there are about 2 billion people out of 7 billion who identify as Christian, identify as Jesus followers. Of course, I've, I will admit, I assume the number is smaller. There's quite a few cultural Christians that maybe aren't actually following Jesus, but uh, the, the same way that, I'll give you the story. Matt Chandler, my second favorite preacher, he uh, says, uh, he was talking to a guy one time in Texas. He, Matt Chandler's pastor of the Village Church in Dallas. And so he asked someone at his church, you know, how, how did you become a believer? How did you become to come to following Christ? And the guy says, well, I was born in San Antonio. And that was the end of the story. He was born in San Antonio. And so there's cultural Christianity here, but it's also what... Uh, it's, it's also something that happens throughout Europe. Like you're just born Catholic and they sprinkled you and so you're Catholic forever. So I don't know if it's truly 2 billion, but let's just say 2 billion. As it stands right now, the, the centerpiece of that, the place where there's the most people who identify as some kind of Christian is still Europe. Stretching from the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, all that, all the way through Eastern Europe. So go on over through Romania and it's Ukraine, so the far stretches of Europe, down into Italy. There's 530 million people through all those countries that call themselves Christians. So when you judge by continent, Europe is the most Christian continent. Latin America is second, with 510 million. So if you go all the way from, as I saw this map, Mexico was included. So they included Central America and Latin America. Uh, from Mexico all the way down to the bottom there. What is that? Brazil at the bottom? Um, so that has 510 million. And then right now in Asia, that's China all the way down through the, the islands there off Japan. That's uh, 309 uh, million. And then North America is next. So that's where Christianity is. But this Baylor professor has been taking a look at the uh, trends, the trend lines of growing and shrinking throughout the world. And he projected by 2025, Africa and Latin America will both be around the 600 million mark, where Europe will have dropped by about 30 million, the United States will have dropped by a few million, and Asia will have grown, but not grown at the same rate. And so I give you these stats for this reason. We live in the West. We live in the United States. And when we look around, what we're seeing is a disintegrating culture, a dechristianizing culture. It doesn't have to stay that way, by the way. The church can rise and do its work. But we see a church in decline in the Western world, in Europe, and in, uh, in North America. But I, as much as that disappoints me, can I tell you how excited I am to see this to see the, this gospel run across Africa and Latin America like that. So one of the great things, the, the, 
the great evidences to me of Christianity's vitality and its verity, that it's true, is it is the most diverse faith in human history. There, there, most religions have its part of the world and it, it captures that one part of the world, but Christianity, it speaks to every culture. It speaks to every nationality. That core problem of sin and how it wrecks everything and the solution that there's one that didn't just come in as an example, but one that came as a substitute to pay for our sin and give us his righteousness. I just love it. I love that it's growing. And so, so for all the, um, the sadness that sometimes gets felt around a declining United States, and I feel some of that too, I just look at the church growing like crazy in African and Latin America and know that what Jesus said is true. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Not against maybe American church and Western European church, but the church. Because it's not just America and Western European. That, that same Baylor professor, can't remember his name right now, did this very cool thing about talking about the median Christian. So the, if you were trying to imagine, what is a Christian on planet Earth? What kind of person are they? And you, you, you spread out those two billion people and you look at the one in the middle when it comes to socioeconomic status, racial groups, you, you line up all the different uh, metrics. And I think he's right when he says, you probably imagine some middle class suburban white person in the Midwest of the United States or the, the southern part of the United States. But that's not it. When you look at it by um, income level or life, uh, quality of life, or by racial group. The average Christian on this planet is a husband and wife in Guatemala who live in what we would call poverty with their four or five kids. They're the the, the husband and wife in Kenya. Just, ma- just making a de- decent little living. That's that's your average Christian. That's That's the average Jesus follower on planet Earth. I love being a part of that. Something deep about that to me. So there you go, projections. As the church wanes in the West, it is growing. And I guess that would give you one challenge. So the church is going forward. It's going to continue to grow. Would you ask yourself what your role is? We, we think about maybe our role for our community, our job, and our family. But like this thing that we're all a part of that's going to last forever, the global church, what's your role as it grows in the other parts of the world? I've been thinking about that in this way. What's growing in Africa and Latin America is often a prosperity gospel. It might be, uh, not, there might be enough true theology there, true gospel there, that souls are converted from death to life. That might be real. But there is also theological shallowness across Africa and Latin America. And I, I have my own weaknesses, but one of my strengths is theological depth. And I want to see theological depth across those places in Africa and Latin America. And I wonder how I could help make that happen. I, I don't know yet, but I'm just asking you what, do you, what do you, what do you think your role is as the church starts to wane where you live or to grow in other places? What's your role where you live? What's your role around the world? I think it's just something for you to think about. Okay, here's another thing to think about. I heard some audio from the governor of Maryland regarding mask wearing. The governor of Maryland is a Republican, but he is the type of Republican you would expect to get elected in a very blue state like Maryland. So I want to play this audio for you and respond to it. I have had a, uh, let's call it a unique relationship to mask wearing 
I have not fit into most of the categories. And so I want to play for you this, what he's talking about wearing a mask in Maryland, and respond as we go. So here is Governor, I think his name is Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. Well, it's, it's sort of like saying I have a constitutional right uh, to drive drunk. I have a constitutional right to not wear a seatbelt. Hold on. Yeah, so saying I have a constitutional right not to wear a mask in public. Saying those words. I have a right to not wear a face covering in public during a pandemic. Forget about any idea of morality or immorality of it. Just giving directly here to his statement. It's like saying I have a constitutional right to drive drunk. One, no, it's not. Here's how I know. If I am driving drunk, I'm doing a thing knowingly. I'm drunk, and now I'm driving. I did a thing to risk other people's lives doing it knowingly. If I am walking around without a mask, and even if I am COVID-infected, I didn't know it. So qualitatively from the beginning, they're, they're not the same. Number two... I don't know how many people, like what the ratio is of driving drunk versus dying, uh, but I do know that the the idea of treating COVID-19 risk, someone getting COVID-19, the survival rate of over 99%, and drunk driving collisions, uh, not just qualitatively, but then statistically, we're not talking about things that are the same. Number two, uh, like saying you have a constitutional right to drive without a seatbelt. Well, I would argue you do, that those laws are unconstitutional. I don't know if anyone has challenged those, but yes, you should have a right to drive without a uh, drive around without a seatbelt on. That's to- should be totally fine. It only hurts you. Even the argument that well, if something particularly bad happens, we all pay for it. Uh, so we have socialized your your risk. I, I can hear I can hear that argument. I think it proves too much, and I can't get into the whole seatbelt argument. We, we got to stay focused on this, uh, but. Uh, so first thing, is it like drunk driving? Not even a little. Uh, is it like not wearing a seatbelt? Well, I would just argue you have, you do have a right to not be wearing a seatbelt because it only hurts you. But beyond, so even there, it does break down qualitatively because me not wearing a seatbelt is a risk to me. What you're arguing is that I might be a risk to someone else with me not wearing my face covering. Or to yell fire in a crowded movie theater. I'm sorry, what? What's the argument? I have a constitution. Uh, there's, there's probably not an argument here. The that that is an, an old trope. You can't do that. Like it, it is a restriction on your free speech. Is that you can't incite a riot. Like you can't use your words in a way that cause concrete harm. Call cause real damage. In this case, again, we're not. That's not what this is. When I when I yelled fire in a crowded theater and there wasn't a fire. That was me lying and intentionally trying to cause harm to others. Me just walking around without a mask, not intentionally trying to cause any harm. And even there, again, the amount of harm that could be done with the the stampeding of people versus someone getting sick. And I have some credibility here because I've had COVID-19, I got sick, and then I got better. So all of the analogies from Larry Hogan here are so bad. It blows my mind that this guy is is a governor of a state. All of those arguments are so dumb. It just it boggles the mind of what kind of intellect he has to do anything else. Here is more of Larry Hogan. Uh, or to not follow the speed limit. Uh, it, it's, you know, we're talking about a quarter of a million people dying already. So immediately you get to the bad argumentation. Consequentialism is not an argument. 
something being sad, tragic, not an argument. It can be sad and tragic, but you, you, got, you have to be careful about what you do with your principles. So if you're arguing, hey, a quarter million people died, so now we can do whatever we want. Right? This is dangerous ground on which to walk. Because then we come to the spot where, well, a bad thing happened, a tragedy happened, an emergency happened, and now that it did, now we can do whatever we want. You have to argue legally and logically, not emotionally or consequentially. The argument should be, have to be legal and logical. You know, more than, you know, the, the, the Korean War, the Gulf War, and the Vietnam War added together. Uh, which part don't you understand? You wear the mask. I, I understand all of it. It's just very dumb. I understand your arguments. They just happen to be quite stupid or, um, or emotionally fanciful. This is uh, more, more deaths than all these wars. All right, so if, if something has the potential to kill more people than other wars, then you just get to create new government powers. New government powers exist because a bad thing happened. That is the stuff that Orwellian 1984, Fahrenheit 451, like those, hey, for that matter, that's the, 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 the uh, to give you something more modern, that's the stuff the Hunger Games gets made of when you start using the scary stuff. Scary thing is happening. Right, so what do we do? Give the government more power. That's, that is the stuff where tyranny starts to get born. I'm not calling this tyranny. It's not tyranny. But that's the kind of thinking that leads to it. Here's a little bit more of Larry Hogan. Mask. It's, there's no constitutional right to walk around without a mask. This is, we did it in, in, in uh, 1918. There's the one I wanted to get to. This is where we get to get underneath the event and the person. The person? That's Larry Hogan. The event, he says that there is no constitutional right to walk around without a mask. So what are the ideas undergirding the person and the event? Well, I'm glad you asked. This gives you the chance, even, to relearn some piece of civics, maybe teach it to your children, about what we, the people of the United States, wrote down that we think about the concept of rights. I think I've mentioned on the show before, Barack Obama once bemoaned the fact that the Constitution of the United States is a charter of negative liberties. That's what he called it. He called it a charter of negative liberties. And what he was saying, went on in that speech to say, is the Constitution says all the things the government can't do to you, but it doesn't say the things government must do for you. And to the former president of the United States, correct, good job. For, for once, it seems you understand something about the Constitution. That's exactly what the Constitution does. By design. Because we, the people, we will do things for ourselves. And we have to restrict you. We have to restrict the government from doing stuff to us. And so the state of nature for our legal system, the undergirding philosophy of our legal system, is that men and women are free. State of nature, we're free. So... If you are going to do anything to restrict my freedom, the burden of proof is on you. You have to prove that you have the, the, the right, the privilege, that you deserve me to give up some of my freedom. I should give you some of my freedom for some reason. The, but the burden of proof is fully on you. So, for example, take, that, take his thing on um, yelling f fire in a crowded theater. Well, I have freedom to say whatever I want. Well, then the government comes along and says, when you say this, there is some line, when you say this, it causes real damage to other people, and that's typically the legal line for us is when you hurt someone else. Then you can't say that anymore. All right, well, I'm going to give up some of my freedom uh, because that, that's a justifiable thing. Right? I'll give up some of my freedom to be able to yell fire in a crowded theater. For 
uh, for, for give you another example on gun laws. The the Second Amendment is very clear. The right to where to, to bear arms shall not be infringed. I don't know that it could possibly be more clear. Shall not be infringed. Really easy language to understand. And so if you want to infringe on it in any way, if you want to if you if you want to put some kind of governance on how I keep and bear arms, you have to justify it. It's one of the annoying things that happens in gun debates is someone will ask, why do you need fill in the blank? Well, that's none of your business. I don't have to justify myself to you. I'm a free American. I'm free. I do things because I'm free. That's state of nature. I'm free. If you, you're the one trying to restrict my freedom, you're the one that has to make the argument that you should have that right. This is one of the hard parts of leftism generally and, and just any kind of authoritarianism because there's authoritarianism on the right as well is the arrogance of it. The arrogance to think, you should be able to tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? Why do you think you're so much smarter and better and wiser than I am to tell me what I should and should not be able to have or do? Who are you people? I can't, I can never fit in my brain. That, listen, I'm an arrogant guy. We all know it. I can't fit in my brain the amount of arrogance it would take for me to look at another adult and think, I should be able to tell you what to do. No way should I be able to do that. Some random adult I don't know, they're a sovereign person on their own. They're free on their own. I should be able to restrict them. So then directly here. So that's how we think about rights. The way the American system thinks about rights is you have rights, you have freedoms. And if anyone wants to infringe upon them, they have to make some really compelling argument because your state of nature is to be free. Therefore... I absolutely have a constitutional right to walk around without a mask. Whether I should or not, different argument. But do I have a constitutional right? Yes. Because there isn't anything in the Constitution that empowers the government to make me do it. And there's even this thing called the Ninth Amendment. I wonder if anyone remembers the Ninth Amendment. It's very important. The Ninth Ninth Amendment, I'm doing this from memory, so excuse me if I get the language exactly wrong, or exactly right. Um, It's something above the enumeration of the Constitution, no, no, no. Uh, the enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed to deny other rights retained by the people. I think that's what it says. The enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed to deny others other rights restrained by the people, retained by the people. Here's what that means. So we put some rights in here. In the Constitution, First Amendment, uh, right to believe what you believe, right to freedom of religion, a right to say what you believe, freedom of speech, right to uh, write and uh, produce what you believe in, in, the, in the way of the press, to put it out in the press, the, uh, the right to take what you believe and try to gather together with others to get uh, your voice louder. Uh, so to, to gather together, uh, that's uh, what assembly, freedom of assembly. And then the fifth one in the First Amendment is oh to, to take that group of people to the government for redress of grievances. So we put that in the Constitution. We named it. We named the right to uh, freedom to uh, bear arms, uh, to not quarter soldiers, not to have soldiers living in your house. That's Amendment 3. Um, Amendment 4, that if you're charged with a crime, you can't, the government can't search your stuff without a warrant. Um, If you are charged, you you get a jury of your peers. That's Fifth Amendment, and you you don't have to be forced to testify against yourself. Sixth Amendment, if you are convicted, the government can't punish you in a cruel and unusual way. So we name all these rights, we come to Amendment 9 and say, now, 
we've enumerated rights. But the fact that we enumerated them shouldn't be construed to deny other rights exist. So just because we didn't write it down doesn't mean that the right isn't there. And that's what it's trying to give us a default setting. The default setting of the citizen's relationship to the federal government is, I am free. Even though we didn't write down this freedom, didn't write down this right in the Bill of Rights, I have it. I have it. The Ninth Amendment says I have all of the rights, all of the freedoms. And if you want to take any of them from me, then according to the Fourteenth Amendment, you have to go through due process of law. You, you have to go through a process, a legal process, to strip me of my rights. And so to Larry Hogan, you know nothing of the Constitution. You know nothing of the Ninth Amendment. You know nothing of the undergirding of our system of freedoms and rights. So I absolutely have the right to walk around without a mask. The government has no power to say anything else about it. I have, again, that's not making a statement about whether or not anyone should. And then I would, I would further argue about private property. So when a company tells you to put on a mask in their place, kindly do so, especially from the Christian perspective. What are you proving? Right? We're, well, I don't know what you think you're proving from a Christian perspective about you know, people that make scenes about these things. So that's, I'm, I'm making an argument directly related to only what he said, what the Maryland governor said. And I'm running over on time. So I'll have to come back and do this. Um, I, I have a couple more thoughts on COVID-related regulation and things like that, how, how these idea of rights and freedoms, uh, the thoughts underneath the facts come into play. So we'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show. Welcome back for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for sticking with us on his radio talk or wherever you find podcasts. You can also find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I hope that you will. Also, happy Advent season and Merry Christmas to you as well. All right. We went through this Larry Hogan audio to establish that they, uh, the, the government tends to understand human rights and the relationship of us to our rights. And I hope it's one of the things you will teach your kids that our system of government is one where the, the default setting is people are free. And if someone wants to restrict freedom, they're the ones that have to make the argument. I never have to justify my freedom. You have to justify taking it from me. That's the default setting in the United States. Now, to the, some of the direct things happening regarding that. You might have seen a fairly viral video. I can't remember where in the Midwest it was, but some health inspector tries to come in and shut down a business that's running against the shutdown rules or having too many people, something like that. And there's a, there's a fight. There's an argument. There's someone breaking the law. They're uh, breaking the order. There's an order given. They're breaking the order by being open and serving customers at full capacity. There, is, there, there, there are these mask mandates. And you have people like Larry Hogan saying there is no constitutional right to walk around without a mask, which of course there is, and he knows nothing of the Constitution. I, I sort of need some people to start filing lawsuits. I don't know why this hasn't happened yet. I really thought we would have by now. Like when this all started, April, May, um, I guess before that, even into March, I thought it would have happened quickly that somebody, one of two things would have happened. Some business owner was going to just stay open 
and just keep operating normally, do it loudly. They go on social media, they make a big, a big to-do about it. And some local government would go in and try to shut them down. Like maybe even arrest them, charge them with something. And then that person would, through the appeal process, probably file a 14th Amendment lawsuit that they have been deprived of property, they have been deprived of life, liberty, or property uh, without due process of law um, or, or, in, or in some other constitutional freedom. That uh, there's, there's several different, different routes you could take on a, an argument that the government didn't have the right to tell me I couldn't run my business. But it didn't happen. So that was one route. Somebody loudly defies the order, gets arrested, and then through that process we get some decisions made. I guess there was always the idea that some business group or just some business says, I'm going to follow the law, but I'm filing this lawsuit. The government is is causing me damage to life, liberty, and property, but not allowing me to run my business. And so I would like a, a judge to say that this mayor, that this county council, the city council, the state legislature, this governor, doesn't have the power to do that. You know, in, in part, we had a big win for uh, at the Supreme Court here recently where the, uh, I think that was in New York, in New York State, they ruled the church restrictions were not constitutional, that the churches could be open. It's, at least the churches get to, get to have the same rules as everybody else, like grocery stores, concert halls, whatever. That, that was good, right? So that was a lawsuit that needed to get filed. But there should be more by now. And on, on the mask thing, again, not making any statement about what is wise, good, or right about mask wearing, just constitutionally. There's been a couple cities that actually did have a council do it, like it was a legislative function. But like when a governor, the governor of Maryland just says, mask mandate, everyone has to wear a mask in public. Does, does the governor of a state have the power to do that? Does the governor of a state have the power to require you to wear something? Now, I say it that way to make a point, because I... I minimize it, right? But to, to wear something. Like, can the, gover- can the governor declare you have to wear a hat? Well, of course, this is different because it's a public health crisis. But that's where I, that's what I want adjudicated. I want someone to file a suit so we can get to some judges and let the judges declare what is true. Because well, I, I can already tell you what should be. I don't know what would happen. But the law is clear. No. No governor has the authority to tell you what to wear. No, they don't. And no public health crisis has uh, changed that. No public health crisis changes your right to walk around without a mask. Now, it might be the charitable thing to do. It might be the wise thing to do. It might be the neighborly thing to do. All that can be true. But that's what should happen. And equally, the government can't tell you not to run your business. They don't, ha- they don't have the authority. It's not written down anywhere. We just acquiesce to it. And maybe we acquiesce to it even out of the goodness of our heart. We looked around at hurting people in a public health crisis, and the American, and then the American people even looked at Congress passing the CARES Act and knowing there was going to be some financial relief for it. And so maybe all that, maybe all that was good, but we still need to set the precedent. It's very important to me that we set the precedent. Actually, let me. I'm gonna go find this. Uh, kept it here. In that case, the Supreme Court case I mentioned a minute ago about uh, the church restrictions in New York being overturned. Justice Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, wrote this. It is time, past time, to make plain 
that while the pandemic poses many grave challenges, there is no world in which the Constitution tolerates color-coded executive edicts that reopen liquor stores and bike shops, but shutter churches, synagogues, and mosques. This is important precedent to set. Just go ahead and say it, that this argument you're using is not an argument that can be used. We are shutting that down. You can't come to the American people and say, a situation is so bad that we're going to do whatever we want. The government can now do whatever it wants because we think the situation is so scary. It's very important that we, that we, we make clear, no, you can't because we're free. And so these are the lawsuits that need to be getting filed. I'm surprised they haven't, and I hope they do. All right, I'm going to end up running out of time, so let's pick, let's, I got to pick one thing only. Uh, here's what I pick. I'm going to say this, uh, let's get very political, right? So we've, we did a spiritual thing with Advent, primarily talking about freedoms outside of the COVID stuff. We're really getting underneath COVID to talk about freedom. Let's get chiefly political for a second. I'm going to keep saying this, Georgia, 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 Georgia. In the political world, when it comes to maintaining freedom, there is nothing more important than Georgia right now. And so I, I, want, I want to illustrate this in, one, in a couple ways. One, there's a couple reports that on January 20th, Donald Trump is going to announce his presidential run for 2024. So while Joe Biden is probably giving a speech, giving his inauguration address, Donald Trump will pull the most troll move, the most trollish thing, and hold a rally somewhere and announce he's running for president in 2024. Forget about whether or not that's good or bad. It takes all of the attention away from what is the most, politi- most politically important thing happening, which is on January 5th, two Senate seats will decide the fate of the Senate and could be quite important. I mean, there's a backstop here because of the West Virginia senator. I forget his name right now, but the um, uh, the West Virginia senator for Democrats says he he won't vote for the crazy stuff like doing away with the filibuster, adding states, packing the court, all that. Uh, Joe Manchin, his name is Joe Manchin. So I don't, I don't want to paint it more dire than it is, but it is the most important political thing happening. And I'm getting very frustrated by folks on, quote, my side, obsessed with this one character and he says he's run for president four years from now, and he's going to do it on January 20th. And so that fires everybody up. That's what they, it's being, that's being paid attention to and not the very important thing happening in Georgia. The, he, he said recently he was, uh, the president said, he was ashamed he endorsed Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp is the governor of Georgia. This is the exact stuff I'm talking about. You need more than ever all of your folks showing up in Georgia and what the president, the current president of the United States does is attack the Republican governor of Georgia, who's done a fantastic job. The, if you care, if I could say anything to the president of the United States right now, it would be that. If you care about the country at all, you'd shut up with that stuff. You are hurting the prospects of keeping the Senate in control of folks who are actually want humans to be free and not create more bondage. And there, there is this obsession with what happened on November 3rd that it is uh, that was the election and how that went, that there's, there's a lot of focus being lost on what is most politically important, and that is what's happening in Georgia. Which brings me to this. 
there is a tweet thread from somebody who claims to be a pollster of some sort. Fine. I'll, maybe he is. I want to... This has been... Um, it has been spread by people who don't think like I do around the severity of voter fraud. So I, I, I think there's always voter fraud. I just think it's, 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 it's negligible. It has no... It has no bearing on an outcome. And so this got sent to me by several of you, plus some of my favorite people on planet Earth that I, I just love deeply. Uh, are, they resonate to this. And so I, I want to inter- engage with it. I think it's important to engage with. So that's how we'll finish the show today in our last five minutes. Here we go. Uh, this guy's name is Kyle Becker. And he is big time, I think, on the... This, this election was stolen, right? So here you go. Here you go. Uh, he says, first, President Trump received more votes than any previous incumbent seeking re-election. He got 11 million more, more votes than he did in 2016. That's the third largest rise in support for any incumbent. So what he's saying is that that's weird, uh, that, he, that he lost. Uh, right, but it, was, it wasn't even the first or second highest uh, growth. There's also plenty of reason to remember 2016 and what happened there. It was a very, very close election. The president won it by less than a couple hundred thousand votes in a combined few suburbs of three cities in the country. That's how he won it in 2016. So yeah, he won a lot more votes this time. It's, it still shouldn't be surprising for anyone into statistics that he would that his opponent would get more because now he was actually president. There wasn't a, a group of people thinking it couldn't happen anyway. There, the foregone conclusion of Hillary Clinton wasn't there. Uh, plus, the, the numbers get run up because of this mail-in voting thing that we got to fix. He writes number two. Uh, Trump's vote increased so much because, according to exit polls, he performed far better with many demographic, uh, many demographic groups. He, he earned the highest share of all minority votes for Republicans since 1960. Trump grew his support amongst black voters. Um, Joe Biden's black support fell well below 90%, the level below, uh, the level below which Democratic presidential candidates usually lose. Yeah, all that's true, but one stat doesn't prove everything. So it's also true that Donald Trump lost white college-educated voters by a margin that no Republican has ever lost them, right? So yeah, did better with one group, did worse with another group. That's how statistics and numbers work. Um, Kyle, Kyle Becker says, Trump increased his share of the national Hispanic vote to 35%, um, with 60% or less of the national Hispanic vote. This is, this is stuff that doesn't get on my nerves. This, this really gets in my crawl. Uh, with 60% or less of the national Hispanic vote, it is arith- arithmetically, math- mathematically, impossible for a Demo- Democratic presidential candidate to win Florida, Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico. You're, you're going to have to la- actually lay out some numbers, not just declare it. The Hispanic vote share in those states is larger, but w- like, it didn't even... Trump did win Florida, he, and which has a higher Hispanic group uh, than Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico as a share of the vote. So you just say, well, it's mathematically impossible. That's irresponsible. Irresponsible to declare things like that without actually laying out the, the full evidence. I'm, you know, I'm two minutes left. So he, he, if you want to go find it, go do that. Kyle Becker put out a long tweet, tweet thread basically saying, it's so weird. Here's so many, so many numbers that are weird for Trump to have lost. I'll, I'll actually give you another one because this one, again, is deeply dishonest or just stupid. He said, well, we are told Biden won more votes nationally than any presidential candidate in history, but he won a record low 17% of counties. That is an utterly meaningless statistic. You take Maricopa County in Arizona. Maricopa County is where Phoenix is. It's close to half the people live in that one county. 
Take my state. Take Greenville and Charleston counties. Between those two, that's like a million people. Like a quarter of the state. Actually, it's more than a quarter of the state. In two counties. You, that, that's how population works in the United States. The county that makes up the five boroughs of New York City is one county. But it makes up a giant chunk of people. This, is, this isn't hard. Los Angeles County is, I think, the second most populous county. But it's only one county. So yeah, Joe Biden won 17% of counties. But those are all the counties with a lot of people in them. That's a, if it's not misleading, then it is stupid. It's a meaningless statistic. It's, it's one of the ones that gets on my nerves on my side. When there's a, they share these maps of all this red across the country. Well, how could, how could Joe Biden win with all this red? Well, because Nebraska and Montana are large. The Dakotas are large. Texas is a big place. I don't know if you know this. Land doesn't vote. People do. And so, yeah, 17% of the counties went to Biden. Okay. That's where all the people live. This, is, this, should, this shouldn't be hard. So, listen, I'm, I'm being a little bit of a jerk there to this guy. There's definitely some skepticism I have about some of the stuff that happened in the 2020 vote, particularly the mail-in stuff. Like, we, we need to end it. I'm, I'm basically positive we, we've got to end the mail-in voting. I have a lot of skepticism uh, about some of the, the normal stuff, people who don't live in the right state, voting in the, you know, voting in the wrong state, some folks who had passed, sending in ballots, not in the gigantic numbers it would take to overturn any kind of election result. I understand there's still things happening out there as well. And I want to, I, I said from the very beginning, I want all those processes to happen. And uh, because the American people of every strike deserve to have their interests fought for to the very end and the end of the law. Wherever the law ends is where the fight should end. But this kind of stuff from this guy, it's, it should be thought through deeply enough to just discount a lot of those arguments because they're not well made. Thank you for listening to the show. I'll be back with another Advent edition of the Corey Act show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.